As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Yeah, it's good to be here. And we are picking up our conversation from last week, um, all about the movement known as effective altruism. Uh, we won't uh, rehash the definition, but if you haven't listened to last week, this, well, what we say today won't make sense. So do go back and catch up on that. Um, but so we basically last week we talked about how the genesis of the idea, the kind of utilitarianism philosophy that underlines it. You you express some of your skepticism or or some of the kind of issues that philosophically people have identified with utilitarianism. And we talked about how the movement has kind of become slightly unmoored over time as it focuses on getting crazy rich and funding itself. Um, but it's it's true, isn't it, that actually there are lots of Christians involved in the EA community and a distinctively kind of Christian movement within it who argue that, that actually effective altruism is, it, it might have emerged from kind of atheist philosophers, but actually it dovetails really well with Christian ethics as well. Yes, I, I was very interested. I've only really come across this movement in the last few days um, of effective altruism for Christians. But uh, they take a, on their website, and we'll put the links uh, in the notes, they take as a definition, effective altruism is the project of using evidence and reason to figure out how to best contribute to helping others and taking action on their basis. And And then on the website, they go and say, well, Surely, as our primary goal as Christians, uh, second only to loving God, is to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. And so, um, the the questions are, the problems is, as they put it, is not that we have a lack of opportunities; we have an abundance. You know, there are thousands and thousands of Christian charities uh, in the UK, in the US, and around the world. And how on earth do we choose where to put our money? And and then the questions which we talked about last week come up. Should I donate near where I live or abroad? Is it better to volunteer my own services or to donate money? Should I focus on problems affecting people right now or potentially greater dangers in the near future? And um, so effectively, I think what what these Christians are saying is that we can learn a great deal from the effective altruism movement, which is largely a secular and atheistic movement, they they raise some concerns and issues. But, uh, you know, it seems to me like a very thoughtful and appropriate 
uh, way in. Hmm. And it's fundamentally true, isn't it, that Christians, Christianity is a religion which places a high value on giving, on on compassion for the other, on on service. Uh, and I mean, one one example, and I was going to go on to say, and it's really good that effective altruism has got there from, admittedly, from very, very different uh, kind of foundations. But fundamentally, I would rather secularists believed it was important to give their money to good causes and they didn't because that is, you know, that's a good thing to do. Um, and one example of interesting overlap is is this idea that we mentioned Peter Singer uh, in the last episode. He's very big on the idea of, of what we would call a tithe, of setting aside of a portion of your income and committing to giving that away over the rest of your life. And, you know, many Christians traditionally have, have done 10%, but um, the number varies and the Bible doesn't sort of give, give clear kind of outright commands on this issue but it's a long-standing tradition that 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 we should um rather than you know spend on yourself and then give what is left but set aside you know the bible talks about the first fruits of the harvest and and the first and the best of the of the harvest or the flock would be were to be sacrificed to the lord and and christians have for thousands of years understood that in today to mean giving aside part of your wealth your resources outright and setting aside to say i'm going to give that away and so it's interesting to see how these kind of secular philosophers have come up with a very, very similar idea. Often they say 10% as well as a good baseline. Yeah. And of course, in the biblical way of thinking, uh, it is very much related to the understanding of society and the duties we owe, particularly to the most vulnerable. And so time and time again in the Old Testament, there are these groups that are singled out, widows, orphans, and immigrants, and also elsewhere, the poor. And these are people who are particularly vulnerable and open to abuse, and therefore God himself says, I am on the side of the widow, the orphan, and the alien, and that if you are following me, you must make practical provision for them. And so in the Old Testament law, is, is there are provision is made. For instance, when you are harvesting a field, you're, you have to leave a, a margin, uh, which you leave for the poor and the widows and the orphans to be able to uh, glean for themselves. Um, so it was actually laid down in the in the um, Old Testament law. And Jesus extends that by saying, yes, we're called to love not only our neighbor, you know, the, my fellow Jew, the person who lives close to me, but actually he says, who is my neighbor? And then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and that story has had a huge influence on um, the whole uh, development of the welfare, uh, Christian concerns for welfare, development of hospitals, and uh, and ultimately all the way through to the welfare state. Hmm. And I think in addition, I have a lot of time for some of the basic ideas of, of Christian EA, which says, um, you know, giving is good, as we've discussed, but also when you give, it should be thoughtful, it should be reasoned, it should be wise. And so we don't just give to the first chapter that crosses our heart, our minds, or, or the first thing that we see walking down the street, but we should actually carefully and prayerfully consider how we can give money in a way which, uh, you know, is most effective for the kingdom, you know, which, which, can, which can make the most difference for the most number of, you know, whoever the widows, orphans and strangers are in our world today. So have you come across examples of giving which you thought were pretty pointless and a waste of time? 
certainly, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to name names of individual charities, but there are certainly, a, uh, um, particularly outside the church, lots of, of kind of charitable organizations, which, where, which I just, I feel are run more on sentimentality uh, and, and thoughtlessness rather than, than a real uh, um, desire to, to make an impact. Um, uh, I mean, it's, the, the, the classic example people always bring up is is you know there are a number of charities in the UK that run donkey sanctuaries for you know donkeys that used to do rides on the beach for children and have now retired and um, they are stupendously well funded <laughs> mostly through wills and legacies and wills uh, but you know these donkeys live in, in the lap of luxury and you know I'm no donkey hater to be, I don't, I don't have anything against the donkeys. Yeah, we're going to have I don't, donkey I don't, lovers. Big donkey up, lobby mate. is going to come after us. <laughs> I got nothing against donkeys, and you know, of course, I want them to be generally treated well. Uh, but fundamentally, it just doesn't strike me that the, one of the greatest needs in our country at the moment is is a few hundred retired donkeys after their exhausting existence of carrying small children up and down beaches for a few, a few so, years. So when we were talking earlier, you also gave an example about toys being given for Syria. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, that really wound me up recently. So uh, the other thing that really gets my goat and where I think the EAs have a, have a point is, is, is that human beings are obsessed with the idea that when we give to charity, if you just give money, it's clinical and detached and soulless and, and destructive. And, and who wants to do that? That's icky. I would much rather give an item. Uh, and so you see this in the Christian world where, you know, it's very common. We did it actually growing up, didn't we, Dad, where you would put together a shoebox of toys and some toiletries and things. And that would be taken to, to give to, to a, a child who, who might not otherwise get a Christmas present uh, somewhere in the developing world or, or, or someone living in poverty. And, you know, not necessarily a bad thing to do. We can talk about that later, maybe. But but what really gets my goat recently was um, there was a devastating earthquake people will be aware of in Turkey and Syria recently. Very, very serious one. Tens of thousands of people were killed. Hundreds of thousands left homeless or injured. And uh, I saw a video going round online, uh, which was of a, a, a professional football game in, at a Tur- in Turkey shortly afterwards. And at half time, all the fans had been encouraged to come to the football game holding a stuffed toy, a cuddly toy, uh, and at half time, they said, get your cuddly toy and throw it from the stands onto the pitch. Uh, and so there was this quite striking video panning around the stadium as tens of thousands of these stuffed toys were hurled in this kind of cascading waterfall, raining down onto the pitch in, in mountains of them. And then the players and the club staff were helping to bag them up. And they said, you know, we'll make sure that these get taken and given to some of the, the child survivors of the earthquake. And it was being, you know, it was being, you know, shared incredibly positively. And everyone was saying, what a wonderful example, how generous, how wonderful. And it just drove me up the wall because it's the stupidest <laughs> way of helping. Uh, because <laughs> one, it's the logistics of transferring 10,000 stuffed animals, you know, the money spent on all those vans and the people involved. And then, and then, but more importantly, imagine you're a child who's lost your home Um you're in you're you're in out in the cold in the middle of winter. Uh, you're at risk of probably sexual exploitation or child trafficking. You might be injured yourself. You're grieving after the loss of families. Do you really want a secondhand stuffed toy? Is that the best <laughs> that the wealthy middle class of Turkey can offer the the poor children surviving from, from an earthquake? The obvious thing to do 
is to give money to aid agencies that are setting up emergency relief work in the region. That's the obvious thing to do, is just to give money. But people feel so icky about about some, about giving money that they would rather do something incredibly ineffective, like throwing a stuffed toy onto the pitch, football pitch, hundreds of miles away from the affected area. Um, so yeah, I do often feel like modern charity is has got wrapped up in 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 it's it's a way of making the giver feel good and ea say hang on it's not about you it's about the recipient not the donor and let's think about how we can most effectively help the donor find you know in christian terms fullness of life yeah no and i i certainly sympathize with that it's actually very difficult though so for instance uh, you know in a previous era when i was working as uh as a professor in, in pediatrics, one of my uh, hats was uh, raising money for medical research uh, designed to prevent brain damage in babies. And uh, I was involved with a number of charities who were supporting our medical research. And they asked me to be involved in various fundraising appeals and it was absolutely clear, you know, these were professional fundraisers who were very good at their job, but they knew what were the, the things you had to, you know, what were the keys that would unlock giving. And it was always the human interest story. It was always the the touching, you know, video of this tiny little baby and how wonderful critic cutting edge science and then you know talking to the parents and if you can make them cry if you can you know evoke some kind of emotion then um and it i found myself having you know a sort of conflict of interest really because on the one hand this was very important in terms of funding our research but was it really appropriate to be using what could turn out to be emotional manipulation i mean it was all true. We weren't telling lies. This was genuinely, these were genuine stories. Um, and there is something very human about that, isn't there? That we, you know, that the part of the problem with effective altruism is this kind of cold calculus. Mm. This, you know, don't forget your heart, forget your emotions, get out your calculator, get out your spreadsheet, uh, recalculate the efficiency and then make a decision based on that yeah you're absolutely right and fundamentally i guess what i'm railing against is not it is human nature and and the fundraisers were you know you worked with which were right Uh, most people in this world don't think like effective altruists and therefore if you want to extract the most money possible it is good to to highlight individual stories not big numbers and you know put a face on it and uh, and help people think think of it as as a kind of heartwarming character tale rather than just here is a basic stats about how many qualities you're going to save per pound spent um i get i guess the other aspect that 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 i think is praiseworthy among christian eas it is pointing out that um the the disparities of um a spending power can be extraordinary i think more than we often realize here in in the west those of us who live in the west and the example they 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 give on this christian ea website is is two charities here in the uk actually uh, a charity called guide dogs uk which as they as the name suggests they are dedicated to to breeding training uh, guide dogs seeing eye dogs in the us uh, for blind uh, people often young, youngsters um and 
you know, uh, great charity. You know, there are people in this country who need guide dogs and uh, it costs a lot of money about, I think about 60,000 pounds to, to train a guide dog, breed and train a guide dog. Um, but then there's another charity called Sight Savers. Actually, I think it has a Christian ethos or Christian heritage and they're dedicated, also UK based, but they're de- they have a completely different approach to uh, tackling blindness and they're, they're, they send uh, eye specialists and eye doctors into the developing world uh, into particularly kind of rural disconnected areas where there aren't uh, big hospitals and, and resources. And they do these kind of mobile clinics that go around, basically find people with very, very severe, but but very treatable conditions like cataracts or trachoma. And they do incredibly ch- quick, effective and cheap operations, sometimes as, as quick as 15 minutes that effectively give people their sight back, you know. And so this chari- the, the Christian EA website notes that, you know, you can give, uh, you know, a hundred pounds to sight savers, and you are effectively giving five people uh, upwards of a decade or two or three decades of vision back, or you can give a hundred pounds to guide dogs, and you've helped raise, you know, one hundredth, one percent of a single guide dog to help a single person for a few years. And, and I, you know, I'm not saying giving to guide dogs is a bad is a bad idea necessarily, but it is it is good that people are drawing our attention to actually your money when targeted and spent overseas can sometimes be staggering the orders of magnitude more impactful. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Yeah, so just again reflecting on what a Christian perspective on on this would be, and I would want to put this under the heading of what it means to live wisely, and to use our resources wisely. And and this theme of of biblical wisdom is a very rich and nuanced theme, uh, you know, which you can trace throughout the Scripture, and uh, but it's very much related to practical uh, integrity. Uh, judgment and understanding you know so I think one of the ideas is that God creates not just the physical structure of the universe we've talked about this before haven't we? but also a, a hidden moral uh, structure a, a grain that goes into the universe and the way of wisdom is to live your life along the grain of the universe and if you live your life along the grain of the universe not only will your life flourish but you will be living in with in generous ways and helping other lives to flourish whereas if we live lives of folly across the grain then things are going to go wrong so i i think that that fundamental idea of wisdom is is a very positive thing and certainly being wise in how we give our money and thinking about uh it carefully and thoughtfully uh and rationally is certainly part of it but i think where utilitarianism as a as a philosophy is very, very different from Christian thinking. And that Christian thinking is that we come into this world already with a web of relationships of um, and, and, and duties and responsibilities. You know, so I am born into a family. I have parents. I have siblings. Now I have children and grandchildren. And I have duties and responsibilities to these. But also 
I'm in a church community, so I have duties and responsibilities to my Christian brothers and sisters. And I, you cannot reduce this web of responsibilities that God has put me in to a kind of harsh, rigid, maximizing calculation. That's not the way it works. I mean, I'm called to care for my children, whether it maximizes utility or not, you know, and irrespective almost of the needs of people around the world, because my first calling as a parent is to this this person I've been given. So um, I do think that there is a fundamental mismatch there. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's always interesting things to say about that. I mean, this comes down to what's sometimes called in kind of philosophy or ethics, the idea of proximity. And, you know, EA says quite, and utilitarianism says quite explicitly, we should eliminate the idea of proximity, that your next door neighbour is no more a worthy recipient of your time and care than an absolute stranger who lives 20,000 miles away on the other side of the world. Um, all people are worth the same. And, and, Guard, making ethical decisions based on proximity is is unethical, is immoral, um, and I, you know, on one level you could say potentially that's a Christian idea because we do believe that all human beings are made in the image of God and that we shouldn't value those who look like us, who live near us, who who are our friends, our loved ones more than someone else because every human being is made in the image of God. But I think you're right that actually. It, it's too glib to just dismiss proximity. And actually, I think there is baked into kind of traditional Christian understandings of ethics, an idea that, as you say, God has placed particular individuals and communities around us, and that we are, we do have an especial calling that doesn't obliviate our calling to other people far away, but we do have an especial calling to those, you know, primarily, as you say, those in our family, but also those in our church family, those in our neighbourhood. Um, yeah, and one of the really interesting things is that uh, it's just occurred to me that Jeremy Bentham and his concern about maximising utility across the population is very much related to the rise of urbanisation, you know, early 19th century, when you're starting to get these large conurbations. So it's no longer about living in a village and looking after the village. We've now got to find some kind of rules which work across massive conurbations we've got to decide how we're going to distribute money and so on london you know, just he... become the first million person city on earth at this point in the early 1800s when he's founding ucl you're, you're right, people that's... are plunged into anonymity how who is my neighbor who is who is my community how do i know who to serve absolutely and so isn't it interesting therefore that the rise in effective altruism is now related to the fact that we have a global information space we now know what's happening to lives literally around the world we have satellites which can monitor um, every community on the planet we have information about uh, millions of billions of lives and where therefore these kind of calculations now become possible we're aware mm. um, at a global level that that was simply not possible before and on, I'd like to say initially, there is some merit to that. You know, I think of, for example, you know, it was only when modern communication improved that, um, you know, accurate uh, pictures and accounts of what was happening, for example, on slave plantations 
in in the Caribbean got back to the safe metropole in, here in the UK mm. that the anti-slavery movement got going. That it was mm, when you know previously people could live their lives unknowing that every time they bought sugar they were effectively you know adding to the lashes on the back of an enslaved African who had been transported to the Caribbean to grow that sugar. And it was Wilberforce and the and the abolitionists who flattened the world and said, "Hang on, the person in Manchester needs to know that their cotton in the mill that they're spinning is being gro- grown by slaves." Uh, you know, somewhere in the Americas. So on one level, that flattening is good, but I think on the other level. It's, it's unhelpful because, as you say, we are supposed to be kind of finite creatures that are hemmed in and boundary. We're not supposed to have this kind of bird's eye satellite view like a god who stands back and sees the entirety of creation like the Lord does and therefore has to make these complex calculations about who is best to save. God has placed us with our limits that are good limits in a particular place. And, and in some ways, it was perhaps almost better not to be aware of the infinite amount of suffering that is going on every second of every day, because it paralyzes us when actually, you know, do the good you can in the place that God has put you is not a bad principle to start. That's, you know, what we see in the good story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't we? Yeah, no, I think the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is very profound because the whole point is that this was a chance encounter. Uh, the story that Jesus tells of the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he wasn't intending, he hadn't planned. Uh, and then out of the chance encounter, he he sees terrible suffering and his immediate response is compassion and self-sacrifice and a practical concern. And, and that parable, therefore, became very in, influential in the development of, of healthcare over 2,000 years. And that's why, for instance, the monasteries uh, was set up um, on the roads where the travellers were to provide the you know the first aid and the emergency departments of centuries ago, and that, the same that happened in London. The the big monastic hospitals were situated on the bridges going into London, so they could provide uh, emergency relief and care to travellers. Um, so I think that idea that um, we are called to respond compassionately to the chance encounters that we have is 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 a very deep one the other thing that i found fascinating while while looking at the christian ea kind of manifesto that we've been talking about and we'll we'll link to it is they bring up the very real concept of scope bias which is this idea that there's a cognitive bias in humans which has been demonstrated by some kind of studies that um we give more or equivalent value to smaller groups of people than to larger groups. And, you know, they've done studies where they say, how much would you uh, pay personally to save or to, to help 10 people or a thousand people or a hundred thousand people. And, and astonishingly, the numbers people say are relatively similar when you average it out. Um, and it's this idea that actually we value small number of individuals that we can wrap our heads around rather than a kind of huge anonymous mass of hundreds of thousands. And, and, and the EA answer, including the Christians, say actually this is this is contrary to God's heart because He values everyone the same, and therefore, a hundred thousand people of His precious children is clearly worth more than just ten of His precious children. Um, and then fascinatingly, the, the 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 Christian EA kind of manifesto goes on to use the parable of the lost sheep as an illustration. But when I was reading that, I, I was struck by actually I think they've misunderstood the parable, and that actually it's it's quite the opposite. The 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 lost sheep and the shepherd going after the one and recklessly leaving the 99 behind undefended is the perhaps the least 
kind of effective evidence-based strategy he could employ. Uh, but but the shepherd is transfixed by the individual, the character of the individual lost sheep, and is desperate for them to return and be saved, and so goes after them. Whereas the most EA response would be, well, let's clearly build a better fence around the ninety nine and protect them because there's loads of you know quality adjusted life years there, and and let's not um, um pick up a look after the 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 one. Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard it said that um, shepherds in the, in the time of the New Testament were sort of lampooned as being the thickest and most stupid members of society. And therefore, there's a kind of humor in the parable that, you know, it's exactly what a shepherd would do, would be to be so worried about the one lost sheep that he just leaves the 99 wandering around on the, you know. And, and, uh, and yet, as you say, Jesus is using that as an example of his father, uh, of the father's love and concern for individuals. So, so, yeah, I I don't want to be too hard on the on the Christians behind this the Christian version of EA because I do think their their concerns are are genuine and and there's a lot we can learn from them. I think we just need to do it with real thoughtfulness and discretion. Um, there's just one other thing. I, we're coming to the end, but I just like to flag up another. I think really very interesting thing, and that is different understandings of the future. So the utilitarian perspective regards the future as non-existent until we construct it. So it's almost like this massive tower. And as we put bricks into this tower, we are building up the future. And the future depends entirely on how we, the choices we make now. And so this whole concern about existential risks fits very much into that view that if we make a bad choice now, if we if we don't watch how we're developing AI at this point, this is going to have catastrophic consequences down the line. So the future is a construct created by human choices. Whereas in Christian thinking, there's much more this sense of a drama there's the great drama which started before the foundation of the world, which includes the creation, which includes the creation of human beings, which includes uh, the incarnation, the resurrection, the, the, the cross and the resurrection. And each of us is, is, has a, a playing as bit players in a great drama. But the ultimate direction of the drama is not under our control and is not our responsibility. God himself is the great dramatist. And his providential purposes uh, are in the way. And of course, our actions do have downstream consequences. And we're called to be wise about how we have um, these, uh, how we behave. But we're released from responsibility about the long distance future. That is ultimately in God's hands. My responsibility is to play my bit part and to play it well. Hmm. And that is very radically different, isn't it, to how a lot of the kind of secularist long-termist understanding, I mean, we covered this a little bit in our episode last year about uh, kind of climate anxiety and, and how we don't, neither of us don't think that despite the very, very real risks and significant dangers of climate change in the future and the importance of taking strong, urgent action now to, to mitigate that, we don't think the right thing is to become so transfixed by potential disaster in the future that it completely overwhelms how we act today and there is a, a place for not kind of in the kind of glib oh it's fine god's got it we don't need to worry about the future that's clearly unchristian but there is also a place for saying 
God is still sovereign and the king of this world. And we don't need to presume that everything that we do now is, is in some kind of like all seeing way, building a future, building, building what comes next. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that wonderful story and perhaps we will finish on this about Joseph in um, where you remember the story that his brothers hated Joseph and they wanted to kill him. Uh, but then they decided to sell him to these passing traders as a slave, and he goes off to Egypt, and and then the whole narrative unfolds, and it turns out that Joseph is playing this key role in Egypt as the number two to Pharaoh, and makes provision and saves thousands of lives um, f- from famine, and then he meets up with his brothers accidentally and they are terrified that he's going to take retribution on them and he says don't be afraid you meant it for evil but god meant it for good and so there's this fascinating idea that there were sort of two intentions there there is a human intention and the human intention matters but running concurrently running at the same time there is a divine intention and the divine intention was providential and ultimately for good. And, and there's a deep, deep reassurance in that, I think, that even though human intentions are sometimes for evil or careless or pointless, there is a deeper intention that God is at work. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't bother. I mean, you know, the st- whole story is about the importance of Joseph taking provision, of being wise So it certainly doesn't release us from human responsibility, but it helps us to see a deeper narrative behind it all. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we've run out of time for this episode. I'm sure we could talk a bit more about this, um, but uh, yeah, please do. If you're interested, do do click through to some of the links in the podcast description and and read further. It's a really interesting um, kind of movement. Um, uh, And thanks very much for everyone for kind of going along on this journey with us. as always, you can get in touch with us by emailing molad at premier.org.uk if you've got any questions, queries, disagreements, feedback, suggestions for future things we could talk about, please do get in touch. Um, uh, do have a look at uh, Dad's website, johnwyatt.com. Uh, lots of interesting resources there. Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, bye-bye. Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.